listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in the wilds of West Cork, we investigate stories of the strange, remaining critical, but never cynical. And this episode, all about medieval beliefs. Now, you find me here on a spring day at the cabin, uh, full of bits and pieces, as usual, all around the place. Ancient tomes, uh, ancient shrouds with uh, pictures of... Jesus Christ and other famous celebrities from history somehow magically or mystically imprinted onto them and somewhere around here probably being used as a paperweight is the Holy Stone of Clonrickert because I've just been digging out some stuff that I hope will be relevant to this particular conversation. My beer for this episode, I'm enjoying a can of Little Monster from Trouble Brewing and they are based up in County Kildare. It's a nail... And yeah, Little Monster, I suppose, would have been more appropriate for some sort of cryptozoology episode. But, you know, I, I, I'll drink what I can get a hold of. Uh, and that's what I have today. Now, uh, as always, you can get in touch over at the social medias. So on Twitter, I am still at Strange Ireland. And on Instagram, I'm still, oh goodness, what is it? Uh, Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude. Feel free to say hello and uh, maybe suggest some ideas or things that we could cover on the show. You can also support the show as usual over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. And I'm going to say thanks to a couple of folks who have done so recently. And they have both been on the show before. And I promise I didn't put them up to this. They just did this out of the goodness of their own hearts. So big thanks to uh, Sharon Hill, firstly, who wrote, uh, you do an impressive job of research and fair presentation on interesting issues. Top quality content. Uh, thank you. That means a lot coming from Sharon, obviously, whose work in the field is very well known. And at the moment, she's still doing her weekly weird news, which is always worth subscribing to. So go and check that out if you haven't already. And um, also chucking a few shekels for coffee and uh, books, I suppose, is usually where the coffee money goes, to be honest. Also uh, supporting the show is Tom Ellis, who spoke to us uh, previously, I think it was last year, um, about the lost cosmonaut theory. So uh, you should check out Tom's blog called Red Sky at Dawn, um, Space Age History, Atomic Era Culture and Cold War Collisions Between the US and the USSR. So lots of good stuff there, uh, Space Age, uh, Space Race, Cold War stuff. Um, so yeah, thanks to both of you. Also, you should check out the episode where I spoke to Sharon about ley lines. Um, those were two great episodes from last year. So big thanks uh, like I said, if you want to also support, head on over to buy me a coffee forward slash wide Atlantic. Okay, so that's most of my preliminaries done. Oh, except I want to talk about, I got a, a nice message from um, Blake Smith over at Monster Talk Podcast, which I'm sure you all know. Um, and he was talking about our recent episode about Ar Arthur Conan Doyle and the origins of the lost world. And he said, I enjoyed the latest episode, but at the whole time I was wondering, are you going to talk about the great film hoax? Which we didn't. And uh, so so Blake says, I, I kind of hope you didn't know about this because I would like to be the person who hips you, hipped you to this madness. And he was good enough to send on some, some really good uh, sources for this story. Now, we kind of got close to this story uh, on the Lost World episode, but we didn't really go there partly because I have spoken about it before and I think it was on the Origins of Kong episode where I talked a lot about the career of Willis O'Brien. Now Willis O'Brien of course famous stop motion photography animation 
pioneer of the teens, twenties, and thirties. Uh, was responsible for King Kong in, the th- in 1933, but also the 1925 silent movie version of The Lost World. And the story that Blake is alluding to here, I'll mention it again just because it is it is really so much fun. And if you listen to that Lost World episode recently, this is a nice kind of addition to it. So um, amongst the sources uh, Blake has sent my way is the silent movie monsters dot tripod.com page which has loads of great lost world stuff loads of great arthur conan doyle stuff and um so basically in 1922 conan doyle is lecturing he's on a tour of america and uh, he's talking about spiritualism and he of course as is well known to fans he was he had a close enough on and off friendship with harry houdini so what he's traveling in i think new york houdini says to him come and visit this you know he belongs to this group of uh, Meditions, the Society of American Meditions. They're having a meeting. Uh, he invites Conan Doyle to come and see them. And in the middle of the meeting, I think during the lunch or dinner that they had, Doyle brings out a a, a device for playing a, a film, and he play he screens some footage for them without explaining what it was or where it came from. And it is, of course, the stop motion animation of Willis O'Brien, who is working on the Lost World or preliminary kind of special effects. Uh, proof of concept reels for the lost world perhaps and there are dinosaurs moving fighting and doyle never explains to this group of musician uh, musicians magicians exactly uh, where he got this from and he's having having little chuckle at perhaps having fooled them or making them scratch their heads a little bit and one one little mysterious thing he said was these pictures are not occult this is psychic because everything that emanates from the human spirit or human brain is psychic. It is not supernatural. It is preternatural in the sense that it isn't known to our ordinary senses. It is the effect of the joining on the one hand of imagination and on the other hand of some power of materialization. The imagination, I may say, comes from me. The materializing power comes from elsewhere. And of course, the materializing power came from our boy Willis O'Brien. I was obsessed with Willis O'Brien as a teenager and I spent years doing stop motion and probably thought I was going to be some kind of stop motion animator for um, a, a small part of my life. So this got picked up by the papers and the headline goes in, this is uh, June 3rd, 1922, the New York Times says, Dinosaurs cavort in film for Doyle. Spiritus mystifies world-famed magicians with pictures of prehistoric beasts. Keeps origin a secret. Monsters of other ages shown, some fighting, some at play in their native jungles. And shortly after this, um, Doyle wrote a letter to Houdini where he explained to some degree where this footage had actually come from, in which he uses the very evocative phrase, The purpose was simply to provide a little mystification to those who have so often and so successfully mystified others. So that is the story of Conan Doyle's uh, Lost World Footage Hoax for all the magicians. Okay, that's enough about the last episode. This episode is all about medieval beliefs, and here to speak with me about this is uh, an old friend, actually, uh, Dr. Owen Ahern from the University of Liverpool. I think his first time on the show, but we're old friends. We went to school together, uh, so we've we've got up to some adventures over the years. Now, this subject is very out of my wheelhouse. It's um, not an era of time that I'm super familiar with, 
and I'm slightly uncomfortable talking about religion because I just don't know anything about it. Um, and I, I promise you that any of my really, really basic questions to, to Owen in this episode uh, are coming from a, pla- a place of uh, sincere, sincerely not knowing <laughs> anything about this. So hopefully you guys are going to enjoy this one, all about medieval beliefs. Uh, let's get straight into it. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Uh, sure. Uh, hi, Kian. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> uh, I'm a historian of the early Middle Ages, so I'm currently based here in the University of Liverpool and the Institute of Irish Studies. Uh, and my research, I'm an early medievalist, as I said, my research tends to focus on, I suppose, the, the, the world of ideas, if you like. Uh, I'm interested in the history of ideas, the origins of various notions that we have about the world and, and how it works. And one big area that I'm interested in is, is medieval cosmology or natural philosophy, medieval ideas about about the universe and nature and kind of how it all works, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so I published a few academic articles and, and chapters and edited volumes on, on these kinds of topics. But uh, the main output of that part of my research has been a book uh, which was published in 2020 called Bede and the Cosmos, Theology and Nature in the Eighth Century. Uh, and that's a book, it's an exploration of the ideas uh, of a guy called Bede, sometimes known as, as the Venerable, Be- Venerable Bede, or, uh, or Saint Bede, uh, he lived in the eighth century in, in the kingdom of Northumbria, basically what's now uh, kind of uh, Yorkshire, Northumberland, uh, that area. Uh, and Bede himself was based in a monastery in what is now part of the greater metropolitan area of Newcastle. Um, so Bede was a very prolific writer. A lot of his works have survived to come down to us. So, so that's partly why I chose him as the focus of my study, because uh, with such a large body of work, you know, it allows you to build up quite a detailed picture of, of his ideas of the world. Uh, but since writing the book, I've, I've been extending my research into, into those who came before Bede. So some of the important Christian thinkers of the, of the late Roman Empire uh, and some important early Irish writers who were producing all kinds of interesting texts in and around the, the seventh century, seventh, uh, eighth century, just before the Vikings came and mucked it all up. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of my research profile. Um, I should say at the outset that, yeah, so my research area is very much the, really the early, early Middle Ages. Uh, I actually kind of straddle that division between the late ancient world and, and then kind of the start of the Middle Ages. So the, the medieval period goes on for, you know, another seven or so centuries after my expertise runs out. So just that caveat, you know, um, what I'll be talking about today will be early medieval. It won't necessarily always apply to other time periods. Um, and I should also say, I suppose that I, I also study a specific place, what we would call the Latin West. So that part of the world where Latin was the primary written language. So that's, you know, Britain and Ireland, the parts of Europe that are now France, Spain, Italy, uh, and parts of Northern Africa, now Morocco, 
uh, Tunisia, you know, that, that kind of part of the world. So it is, a, you know, it's geographically limited. I think I should uh, start with that caveat. So this is quite a bit earlier than, let's say, most of the stuff that the average person has heard about medieval. This is yeah, in popular culture, shall we say. If you're thinking medieval and you're thinking kind of knights uh, or even those big, you know, the big Norman castles and cathedrals that, you know, dot the landscape of, of Britain and Ireland, that's that's all centuries later than my stuff. Uh, if you think Vikings, you'd be a, a bit closer, uh, but more or less I'm, I'm pre-Viking. That kind of period after or just at the end, tail end of the Western Roman Empire, um, and you know the arrival of all these kind of various groups like the Anglo-Saxons and kind of uh, the beginning of these new uh, kingdoms in in that kind of post-Roman period. That's my that's my area. Excellent. Well, we are we are way out of my wheelhouse anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. Um, as listeners know, I'm I'm very fond of the 19th century and early 20th century is kind of my as a non-academic, it's my my hobby hobbyist sweet spot. So I, um, this is this is going to be very new to me. Uh, mo- the only stuff I do know, I suppose, about medieval times is is from reading a bunch of Umberto Eco books back in the day. <laughs> on <laughs> that, your recommendation, that's not, bad, that's not a bad start. No, no, he. I mean, he he's a pretty serious scholar too, and, and th- that shows in his books. And not a bad way actually to get in, get your mind in, into that worldview. So um, we're going to uh, we're going to be talking about why people believe unusual things, and I, th- I think we we can come at this from two directions. We can talk about people in medieval times um, and what their beliefs were and what that's based on and how it's different to us now, but also things that people today think about medieval times and how a lot of that is based on myth also. Yep, sounds good. Right. So, yeah, so you, you ordinary people who have not studied this stuff, like myself, might have ideas about medieval times that are probably incorrect. I suspect a lot of the sort of stereotypical stuff comes from early modern, if not, you know, other times altogether not, not related. So what, what kind of things do you find people believe about uh, the medieval period? Just to get that out of the way, I think. Sure. Um I think, well, the, the, the main thing that I kind of get annoyed about or th- that my research is concerned with combating to some extent is the idea that people have this kind of image of the Middle Ages as a particularly credulous or particularly irrational period. Um, as you say, that that kind of view of the Middle Ages, that understanding of the story of the development of European history and world history was shaped by historians in the past few centuries, you know, the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Uh, from the point of view of all those important historians, you know, they saw the Middle Ages as a, as a period of decline, a period of stagnation. From their point of view, before the Middle Ages, you had classical antiquity, which was the apex of civilization in, in, in Greece and Rome, when you know, humanity achieved great things in the fields of art and, and philosophy and science. And after the Middle Ages, you had the rediscovery of classical antiquity and you had the Renaissance, literally the rebirth, and you had the scientific revolution and the enlightenment. And so from their point of view, the medieval period was kind of sandwiched in between these two high points of civilization. That's literally where what the term Middle Ages means. Um, and that kind of 
historical narrative has been extremely influential and continues to you know, cast a long shadow on the, the way we think about European history. So an extremely common thing is to describe, you know, still today you hear politicians using this, you see it used in newspaper articles. People describe something that's backwards or something barbaric as, as being medieval. Yes. Um, and it doesn't matter, you know, how many times you point out that more people died in wars in the 20th century than in any medieval century, or that famous medieval torture devices like the Iron Maiden are, uh, you know, completely made up by the Victorians. <laughs> um, so how this kind of, these, these kinds of ideas about the Middle Ages, how, how it intersects with my research is that there's a very widespread idea of the, of the Middle Ages as a period of, I suppose, anti-science. And this is central to what I would call the myth of the scientific revolution. You know, there exists an overly simplified narrative that says that before this point, before the scientific revolution, uh, people in Christian Europe were, were not rational. They were the opposite. They were irrational, they were credulous. And then Copernicus and Galileo invented the scientific method. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm obviously simplifying hugely there, but there, there are more nuanced arguments for the scientific revolution as a big sea change. But it is true that that picture of the pre-scientific revolution European culture exists, that picture of that, you know, the pre-scientific revolution world as being inherently anti-inquiry or anti-observational science. Now, that may have been true of the institution of the Catholic Church in Galileo's day, because, uh, you know, there's always in any society institutional support for conservatism and a, and a desire to define the parameters of, you know, what is acceptable to investigate. But it's not actually inherently true of Christianity or of medieval Europe. So I have argued in my book and, and elsewhere that the early medieval understanding of nature was rational. And I choose that word quite carefully. It was rational in the sense that a, it was internally consistent, or they aimed to make it internally consistent, and B, it was kind of built up in a series of logical steps from some basic principles. And not only that, but early medieval thinkers did even draw on observation of the natural world. And we can even use the word experiment according to a maybe quite broad definition of that term. So I don't mean to imply that this society or these early medieval societies were rational all the time or that every member of the society was, was rational, because that's not true of any society, uh, including our own. <laughs> Especially our own. <laughs> but, but just that in building up their model of the universe, the thinkers of the early Middle Ages, you know, they were attempting to construct something, as I say, internally consistent and something that was, was built up from these basic principles. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. And it reminds me of, again, people think that the the early modern witch hunts were medieval, for example. And they people yeah. it's one of the things that people think, oh, that was a medieval thing. And also they think, oh, that was an example of medieval foolishness and irrationality when, you know, having done having having spoken to people who've studied this stuff, even even things like that were like internally there there was um, a process to it. And it was actually quite difficult in, in most of these situations to get those things done and to get somebody um, indicted and to go through with the whole process. And, and usually the cases where 
um, somebody was uh, executed was because it was happening in a place that was relatively lawless, which is why there was a burst of it during the English Civil War, mm. you know, when there were parts of the country that um, didn't have strong authority and people like Matthew Hopkins, which finder general, were able to do these things. So, but that that's just me adding something I've learned over the years. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Things that we think of as being um, irrational, actually, when you look closely, they can have their own internal consistency. And uh, th- it's not just a case of everybody going nuts and believing whatever they want. There is a structure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, re- I also remember as a kid um, being granted uh, in, in primary school, being given some version of this version of history where, yes, the ancients were great. And then there was a bit of bit of a wasted period. And then the, the Enlightenment happened and we, we picked up the we picked up again. And I mean, to, saying that now, it sounds like such an anti-Catholic kind of a take on, on history. Um, you know, a post a post Reformation take, but but the idea that this was still being taught in Ireland, which you know, at a time when Ireland was was extremely Catholic, like you know, we, I would say at the very tail end of our very serious, you know, Catholics, all pervasive Catholic society, I I would say we probably caught the tail end of that, and that they were still telling this version of of that history, um, you know, which kind of. They didn't say it out loud, but it's kind of indicting the church, isn't it? It's kind of saying the centuries when the church had the most control over Europe were the were the centuries when you know there was less. In, this is the 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 fairy tale version of the story, if you like. Yes, yeah, yeah, and it's interesting, yeah, the way you put it that we were learning that in in Catholic Ireland. I think anti-Catholic prejudice definitely did play a part uh, along the way in shaping this kind of narrative but lots of other things came in as well you know um kind of 19th century ideas about the inherent uh, what was called the war between science and religion you know these ideas played a huge part in that that image but it was right there from the start as soon as you had uh the renaissance and the scientific revolution those guys knew those guys placed themselves in opposition to what came before so it's kind of an accident of history that what happened to come before was that kind of uh, late medieval Catholic church. Uh, those guys then, you know, the late medieval Catholic church then becomes the fall guy because you need to define yourself against something if you're if you're pushing something novel. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. So if you were somebody living in the early medieval period, what was your, how did you interpret the universe? How did, what did you think? What's going on around you? On the, right. larger... <laughs> <laughs> Let me see. I'll, I'll give you a breakdown of, of kind of the, the, the basic uh, model of the universe. Uh, this model would have been in, inherited from classical Greece and Rome, right? So it's not even a, 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 a medieval model, really, uh, although they did kind of tweak it a bit and, and change some things around the edges. The most important part of their cosmic model was was a theory that you've probably actually heard of in movies and books and the like, which is the theory of the four elements. Yes, I was going to say that. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The four elements, earth, water, air and fire. Oh, uh, and not heart. the four elephants lifting up the... Uh, <laughs> no, the four elements. On top of the turtle. <laughs> uh, and, and in fact, but in medieval, you know, in the early medieval period, that theory was already you know, a millennium old. Uh, it it dates, dates from at least the 5th century BCE. Um, so according to this theory, everything in the universe is made from 
one of those elements or a combination of those elements. So, you know, pick up some, some dirt or some rocks, for instance, that's mostly going to be made of the, the element earth. Water is mostly the element water, but seawater, for instance, was often said to have a bit more of the element earth in it than river water. This accounted for the saltiness of seawater. Now, the important thing about the elements was that each element had a particular weight. So earth was the heaviest, water was a bit lighter than earth, air was lighter again, and fire was the lightest. And this is the central idea that, that kind of binds the whole model together, because this was the ancient and medieval version of the theory of gravity, basically. Because earth was the heaviest element, its natural home is at the center of the universe, which is why you've got the, the globe of the earth sitting nicely there at the center of the universe. Water is the next heaviest, so that lies on top of the earth. Uh, then comes air, then comes fire. So you end up with this series of concentric spheres. If you imagine the universe as an onion, right? At the center of the onion is the sphere of the earth. The next layer of the onion is the sphere of water. The next layer is air and so on. And the outermost layer is the layer of fire. And that's where the planets were uh, and the sun. In the Christian interpretation, uh, above this, you had uh, another sphere where the stars were, but I didn't realize the stars were quite so far away. The stars were kind of all together in, in, in one layer of this onion. And then above that, um, in the Christian interpretation of this model anyway, that's where you start getting into the, the spiritual realm. Mm. Uh, that's where God lives, if you like. So is this, <laughs> is this like official church? line on things was that is this, this on the curriculum becomes the official church line on things um what you see in my period is is they they kind of start to adapt this uh it's not so much the official church line on things at the start as it is the fact that this is so widely accepted across roman society mm. that all these all the kind of educated writers who become the important theologians of the christian church just bring this baggage with them to Christianity. If so you if like. you weren't particularly trained or educated, but you were going to church, going to mass, like, are you hearing this at the pulpit? Is, it, is this widespread amongst the masses? So, sort of? yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. And there's an important proviso there that uh, I think as an early medieval historian, you have to say, we, we just don't know what, you know, uh, what the man in the street thought all the texts that we have from this period, they're all written by a very small proportion of the population. It's a, it's a kind of a literate, learned elite. Um, so we don't know what people thought of outside that kind of uh, mainstream orthodoxy, you know? Okay. Um, you have to assume if, if, if they did go, if they, if they wanted to know, something about how, how the world was made. And they went and asked somebody who was learned, who, who had read uh, these books. Uh, yeah, you know, they would, have, they would have heard that, something along those lines, yeah. I'm, I will mention, like, I, I've, Umberto Eco, once again, as, as for, for a layperson, a, a great intro to trying to get your head around what, how somebody's thinking might, might have been, you yeah. know, in those days, interpreting the world in... I mean, obviously, millions of people still do interpret the world in a, in a religious way, but it, like the, the, the concept that the, the idea that there was almost 
it was almost unthinkable to do it in any other way, you know, within some of these societies. Um, and, and he has his character in The Name of the Rose, who is um, a, a sort of like a proto-scientist um, who's named uh, Brother Brother William of, of Baskerville. William, William of Baskerville, <laughs> because yes. He's, so um, he's, a, he's a mixture of William of Ockham and, and, uh, and yeah. obviously Baskerville is a yeah. Sherlock Holmes reference. <laughs> and it's an incredibly dense, it's an incredibly dense historical novel with like hundreds of pages of like hard going, his deep history at the beginning, which he does to like ward off. Uh, kind of flighty readers and he, he's he's said this in interviews <laughs> but at the same time it's like a kind of a, a it's a silly detective novel you know and it's a, he's mixing yeah, yeah, a very yeah. heavy uh, genre with a, a kind of a lighter one um, and it's it's a good for someone like me it was a great um, intro to and even this character who is um he's overtly thinking in terms of experimenting and a, a kind of a proto scientific method he still interprets things in this religious context and everything has God and, and supernatural doings at the back of it. And he, he goes to great lengths to try and show how all of this can be um, squared, how this circle can be squared. So I found it very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I suppose that ties into to one of the points I'm trying to make, which is just that it's, it's not necessarily irrational to believe in some of this stuff. Um, you know, it's not, it's not, either rational or irrational to believe in miracles or angels or, or any of these other things. What's rational or irrational is how you arrive at that belief. Right? So the, the sort of classic myth of like silly people in medieval times believed daft things is the earth was flat. And <laughs> for years and years, this was the proverbial, you know, thing that we know now is true. So obviously a group of people had to come along and say, oh, well, we'll start taking this seriously again. But <laughs> just to ruin the proverb, obviously. But um, what was the, I have a notion this idea isn't actually very old. No, 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 uh, not at all. Uh, it's a very persistent myth about the Middle Ages that, that they believe that the earth was flat. And it's something that historians are always getting very annoyed about. Um, the, it, it, it simply wasn't. Uh, since Greek antiquity, you know, they'd known that the Earth uh, was a sphere, and that was really central to that whole uh, cosmological model. Um, in the Christian period, there was one or two, you know, you did have the occasional dissident. Um, you know, there's one or two early Christian writers who made different claims. There's a sixth century Greek author cos called uh, Cosmos in the Kaploistes, who argued that we should take biblical depictions of the earth literally and that the universe was shaped like the tabernacle. Um, but Cosmos was like, he wasn't an influential figure. All the really important and influential thinkers of the early Middle Ages, so people like Augustine of Hippo or Isidore of Seville, they were all completely convinced that the earth was a sphere and, and that the universe as a whole was, was spherical. So that idea that in the Middle Ages people thought the earth was flat was a consequence of what we were talking about, that kind of negative way in which the medieval period was seen in, you know, in the early modern centuries. There's a very good book by uh, Jeffrey Burton Russell called Inventing the Flat Earth, where he shows how the myth came about. And one important moment came with a 19th century biography of Christopher Columbus by Washington, Washington Irving. Irving yeah. yes. uh, and Irving claimed that when Columbus set out in his mission to discover, quote unquote, discover the Americas, 
people in Spain thought he was crazy because they thought the earth was flat. Um, and actually that's, that's a good example of, of, of what I was just talking about, that, you know, that, that, that vision of medieval people as credulous and believing things just because, just because the Bible told them to or whatever. You know, in that story, Columbus is presented as the rationalist hero. His critics are telling him, no, you can't sail out into the ocean because you'll, you'll fall off the edge. But Columbus knows better because he isn't blinded by a religious dogma, right? That's the, yes. that's yes. the implicit message. Whereas in actuality, the critics of Columbus's mission were, were not concerned about the flat earth because they didn't, that was not something they believed in. Instead, they thought that Columbus's calculations of the earth's size were wrong. Columbus thought he was going to sail across the ocean and reach Asia, reach India. So the criticism was you, you can't sail that far across ocean. It's far larger than you think it is. You'll die of hunger before you reach India. And the thing is they were right and Columbus was wrong because he thought his measurements were uh, actually had the earth about 25% smaller than it actually is. Mm. He just got really, really lucky because <laughs> as it turns out, there's a huge other continent at just the right spot in the middle of the ocean so that he and his men didn't die of starvation in the, in the middle of the ocean. Um, yeah, so that whole idea of, of the Middle Ages, you know, they, they believed that the earth was flat. They didn't believe that the earth was flat because they had plenty of evidence otherwise. Uh, I mean, one thing that's maybe not so obvious to us, um, you know, kind of living perhaps in a, with all our technology now in a way where we're a bit insulated from the natural world. If you live by a harbor, you know that the earth is round because you can see ships disappearing over the horizon. Hmm. If the earth was flat, ships would just continue to get smaller and smaller until they disappeared. I also presume that do. the folks in medieval times had you know, written access to the experiments of people from the time of ancient Greece where they had worked out, you know, um, what the diameter might have been and stuff so like So most of the early medieval Christian writers wouldn't really have had direct access to some of the more celebrated kind of Greek philosophers that we think of. Uh, in fact, Bede, who I wrote my book about, I mean, he didn't know any Plato, he didn't know any Aristotle or any of these kind of great minds that we think of. But it had all filtered down through other means. Uh, one of Bede's favorite books was uh, an encyclopedia of the natural world by a guy called Pliny the Elder. You might have heard he's a classical author. Uh, but also just through the writings of all these people like St. Augustine, St. Jerome, you know, they all assumed that this, this model was true and they all transmitted it down uh, to later generations. Hmm. Um, and it's interesting that, I mean, you mentioned the experiments performed by these uh, ancient Greeks. There was even a, a bit of room. I mentioned earlier that you know you could, you could almost talk about medieval experiments. Um, perhaps that's too strong a word. We shouldn't be thinking of kind of you know <laughs> modern empiricist science here uh, or anything like that. But there was a certain amount of room for observing what happened in the world around. Right? You didn't just accept what you know was passed down to you or what the bible said it, it had to correlate with your your experience of the natural world so this is why that four element model actually is 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 really uh you know it, it, it's a very simple model but it's actually great it really explains a lot about how the the world works so i'll give you a couple of examples 
But there's um, nothing. That's not from the Bible at all, right? There's nothing. No, that's Bible is nothing to say about this. And yet, but, this was a key element of their worldview alongside biblical sources. Yes, yeah, hugely influential. I mean, if you, if you think about it, the Bible doesn't really say that much about the, the, the shape of the world. Uh, what it does say, I mean, it says the world is shaped like a tabernacle. So, uh, <laughs> that, you know, but they, they, they had they decided not to take certain things literally. They had decided not to take certain things literally. So if you pick up a rock and you drop it, it falls to the earth, right? So first of all, that shows the element of Earth returning to the center of the universe. You could do some other things. So uh, Bede and, and uh, there's an anonymous Irish writer of, of the seventh century as well who, who do the same kind of thought experiment or, or tell the reader, you can go and do this yourself. If you take a, a, an empty vessel, so it's just full of air, like a cup, it's just full of air, put it under the water, what happens? All the air comes out, tries to return to its natural home. Yeah. above the water nice. um <laughs> fire as well right if you think of a candle flame um you know you if you look at a candle flame it's kind of flickering it's kind of dancing upwards they thought that was the fire trying to escape upwards through the air up to its natural home of the 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 the, the, the uh, domain of fire which was far far above um but unfortunately for the fire, there was this big, you know, expanse of, of kind of thick, murky air between it and its natural home. So it, so it couldn't quite make it. It kind of got <laughs> quenched. It kind of got snuffed out on, on its way up. But, you know, there were all these uh, experiments in a way that you could do that showed that this was the, the, the way the world worked. And um, I suppose this might sound a bit religiously illiterate, and I kind of am, but <laughs> I mean, you know, th this question still goes for today and, and people struggle with this, but like to, to what degree, I suppose I have this notion that, you know, if you believe in this stuff, you have to go, you have to buy everything involved unquestionably because you have this holy book and you have this all powerful um, organization who set the set the rules and what they say goes and that's the end of it because it's divine. And to what degree, you know, did people actually have the ability to, you know, argue or wonder or reinterpret religious ideas or interpretations of the world and the universe? Yeah. Um, I mean, there was an orthodoxy. There was an orthodoxy. And I, I don't want to make it sound like there was, you know, complete kind of uh, academic freedom or, or anything like <laughs> that. But in this particular early medieval period uh, that I'm talking about, you know, a lot of stuff hadn't quite been ironed out yet. So there was still a lot of room. You couldn't, um, you know, you couldn't decide that uh, Christ wasn't really the son of God or something like that. You'd, you'd immediately get declared a heretic and you'd be in trouble. Uh, but there was a lot of room around the fringes for, for tinkering. Uh, they hadn't quite decided, uh, you know, some of this, these ideas about the, the nature of the world, the nature of the universe, uh, and so on. Uh, we were talking just a, a moment ago about, you know, the way these Christian writers interpreted what the Bible said about the shape of the earth. And that, I mean, th I think that's a very good example of, that, that's actually a very good question, right? Because it gets kind of to the heart of it. Is there this inherent, kind of uh, clash between religion and 
uh, what you might call, I don't know, you could call it science if you want, but just kind of observational evidence. Yeah. Or, um, so that is, that's a very good example because, I mean, first of all, the thing is the Bible is a very complex text. In fact, it's, re it's really a collection of many texts from many different periods. Uh, so the information in one part of the Bible may contradict the information in another part. On top of that, it's often quite oblique or obscure in its so language. It requires so, it requires interpretation no matter what. It and requires it was translation. You know, from other languages, and people have argued about the translation of an individual word, which can change big things. So yeah. I suppose it's it's silly of me to even think of it as this kind of, you know, immutable, unchangeable. Although this this comes from my my familiarity with it comes from arguing with like latter day um, biblical literalists, you know, which. Sure. <laughs> and I mean, here's the desperately thing. are trying you, to make it into this thing which cannot be misinterpreted. If you went back to an early medieval monk and you asked him, do you believe literally everything in the Bible? He would say, yes, absolutely. But. You know, you bring your own baggage and all these uh, well-educated Christians who read the Bible and read, um, you know, a passage that suggested that the earth was flat or that the cosmos was shaped like a tabernacle. They knew that the earth was spherical. So they just said, well, you know, that's just a figure of speech or that's just an allegory there. So technically you were supposed to believe everything in the Bible, but you know, if a biblical passage contradicted what was obvious to you, you would you would read it in that light. So they didn't just believe what it was in the Bible, no matter what. Uh, at the same time, the Bible obviously was was a huge influence. So I don't wanna, I don't want to downplay that. You know, there was this kind of back and forth relationship between, on the one hand, reason; on the other hand, what do you call it? You know, divine revelation, the word of God, whatever. But it certainly wasn't the case that that the word of God, the Bible, simply dominated people's understanding of the world. It was a bit more complex than that. And as I say, when it, when it comes to nature and the universe, the Bible doesn't actually say a huge amount about the structure mm. of the world or the laws that govern it. So, you know, there was room to innovate there, come up with theories that explained how it all worked. So do you have a take on the scientific revolution then and like what of importance did change at that point i know we're jumping ahead in time here but we are jumping ahead but i i think it's important that we grapple with the scientific revolution because you know it's central to the way we conceptualize the history of of science or the history of kind of knowledge um so again, the simplified narrative is, you know, people were irrational and unscientific and, and Galileo woke up one day and decided to be scientific <laughs> and rational. <laughs> so, like, you know, I'm, I'm being a like bit as, as late here. as Newton, you know, he was an occult. He was an out and out. Absolutely. Quasi mystic yeah. Christian occultist kind of dude. So like yeah. this stuff was much fuzzier than we like to. Absolutely. <laughs> I do think that something did change in, you know, there wasn't the one moment, but kind of around the 16th, 17th century that there was a change. But it's it's a more subtle change than that traditional narrative suggests. So, you know, this is not just me. Many scholars of the past few decades have really stressed continuities rather than radical novelty in terms of the history of science, history of knowledge. Uh, and they've really shown that there was, first of all, there was nothing new about 
rational inquiry or appeal to the evidence of the senses. Uh, not in the 16th century, 17th century of, of Galileo, not at other supposed periods of scientific revolution like the 13th century, you know, Gross Test and, and Roger Bacon. Um, experiment, observation, those things weren't new at, at any of those times, but there may have been a, you know, they may represent a, a shift in emphasis. So a reordering of the importance placed on, on different ways of knowing. So I think that's important. What, what happened basically in the 17th century was that once all that evidence began to accumulate that the old model was wrong, kind of suddenly, all, almost all at once, everything fell apart. And there was this sense of radical novelty. So all mm. those early modern scientists often referred to what they were doing as the new science or the new philosophy. They knew that this was a, a novel approach. So even though experiment and observation weren't completely new, there was there was this, I suppose, renewed emphasis on, on them in the sense we have to start completely from scratch here. The only permissible evidence is this kind of observational evidence. So in my period, to jump back, you know, observational evidence is fine. You can do a bit of that if you want, but it's kind of the junior partner to A, the word of the Bible, if if the Bible had any explicit statements about what you were looking at and be more importantly that 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 model that the middle ages had inherited from classical antiquity um and i just like to you know I, I would just emphasize that that model i've said it was you know more or less invented in in 500 bce it it served very well for you know a millennium and a half uh two millennia even um it was robust, it was simple, it seemed to make sense. Uh, it seemed to accord with all the phenomena you could see in the natural world around you. Uh, so it, it wasn't so crazy to follow it until these new discoveries started to show that it didn't actually hold together. I think when, when thinking about why something passes into popular culture in a particular way and not another way, I think when we tell stories, we like these singular events and these singular personalities. And I, I think something like a long, slow, gradual process doesn't translate very well into popular myth. Whereas, you know, to focus on Galileo as this lone genius up against the, you know, the, the orthodoxy of the day, that's a more that's a more powerful story. That's what we remember. We, we like the eureka moment rather than the <laughs> we like the lone inventor, the lone guy standing against David against Goliath, and I think that's how we tell these stories over and over again. You know, and it ha and these people get sort of lionized a bit, and and you know, it happens to Darwin, and it happened to, but sure. like all, all in all of these cases, when you look at them, there's a trail of people behind them. Yeah, a Lame. trail of people, and maybe it's just you know, you want to be able to say they changed something, they they switched something from white to black. Yes. You know, not that they kind of slightly rearranged the color scheme. <laughs> and you, you have to have you have to have an enemy. Hey, yeah, well, and and obviously the Catholic Church, uh, you know, didn't need any help <laughs> in setting itself up as the enemy for many reasons. I have a tiny story, which is um, I, I I had a friend who was um very Catholic once in my life, <laughs> and um, he was he was very into it, and he um probably won't mind me telling this story, but like he had a film about the life of Saint Francis that he wanted to watch. 
on is there a saint francis's day or there's a feast day associated uh, with? almost definitely almost every definitely. saint has so a feast day yeah, yeah. this guy would know this sort of thing and he was like we're gonna watch this film about the life of saint francis and it was a 1950s hollywood film you know made during the time of the the, the biblical epics oh right okay. and this this guy was really infuriated by the film because being a mid 20th century American film, it had to have themes of individualism and you know rugged rugged individualism. The, the lone guy who comes up with this great new idea, um, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and he struggles against the monolithic um, system that won't listen to him. And be, because, like I said, that's how we tell stories. But I mean that that process got ratcheted up in the 20th century and with film, especially and with, with with that storytelling archetype that gets used all the time. So in the film, it was played up that oh, he had this, he was going up against the church and he had these crazy new ideas and he wanted to set up his new order, the Franciscans, and they didn't want to, and he had to go rebelliously against them to prove that he was correct. And my friend was horrified by this because, you know, as a very deep Catholic, you know, his worldview was about, no, the church is correct, more or less. You know, they're not perfect, but by and large, they have the answer and they are to be respected. And these kind of almost heretical guys who go against them aren't really to be celebrated and certainly like a saint like him shouldn't be portrayed in this way. So it was like this real clash of, of worldviews trying to tell the same story. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you know, so I, I haven't seen the movie, but there's some truth to, <laughs> to that. Yeah. Uh, Francis yeah. did have to push back against the a monolithic church. Uh, and so did Galileo. You know, the, there's, there's yeah. some truth to this and, and these yeah. institutions did exist and, and they were uh, it was it was their business <laughs> what was true and what wasn't even if it wasn't literally in the bible it had become uh you know pretty much um set in stone by that point that, that this was the way you had the earth at the center of the universe uh, you know the sun the planets all went around the earth sure uh, that that okay. onion model you know um so you know that there's some truth to it uh, but it's not like, as I say, it's not like Galileo was the, you know, that he just woke up one morning and decided not to be. And of course, Galileo was religious. So it's not a question of yeah, yeah, either religion are. versus science or anything like yeah. that, or that they're yeah. inherently uh, opposed to one another. Yeah. Let's let's go back to your era, so early medieval, and let's talk about miracles. What what do people know or believe <laughs> about miracles? Yeah. Days? So. At, at the risk of undercutting everything I've said so far, <laughs> uh, they absolutely you know, everyone in that period believed in miracles. Certainly, all the all the you know the the learned elite who wrote texts did. But you know we shouldn't expect that anyone else uh, thought any different. I think um, one of the most fun things to read, one of most one of the best kind of genres to read from my period are the, the the saints lives right the biographies of famous holy men or holy women uh, these saints are always going around performing miracles to show how holy and beloved of god they are uh, and you get all different kinds of miracles depicted in medieval texts often they're closely modeled on biblical miracles right so in the irish saints lives there are so many instances of, of people walking across the water, right? Walking across the surface of a lake or, or whatever, just like just like Jesus. Uh, in one life that I've been translating recently, the life of St. Alva of Emily. Uh, he's, Emily is in County Tipperary now, right? Uh, Saint is traveling, he's traveling onto Rome. He goes through Britain, he comes to the English Channel 
he asks some local fishermen for a boat. They're not very helpful. They give him an old leaky thing. <laughs> so of course, off he sails. No bother in the leaky boat because he's he's a sailor. Okay, so right. Sink. He's so the man is able to overcome the leakiness of the boat. Exactly. <laughs> so the man who lent it says, shouts after him, "Hang on, I want that back." So Alva says, "All right, yeah." He sends the boat back, and instead he spreads out his cloak on the surface of the water, and he sails off on that, and he gets that brings him as far as as Italy. Um, you've got lots of other miracles showing, you know, the saint having dominion over the natural world which sometimes was uh, sometimes was just entertaining, but you know, uh, sometimes commentators would say, well, this is a kind of an echo or a reclamation of the harmony of the Garden of Eden, right? The harmony that Adam and Eve enjoyed with the, with the natural world. So for instance, saints would be wandering in the wilderness without any food and a bird would come along with a loaf of bread or a hunk of meat for them or something. Uh, there's a wonderful story from the life of St. Cuthbert of Lindisfarne, so St. Cuthbert used to sneak off at night and stand naked in the waters of the Atlantic Ocean, praying to God. Right, classic, classic monk behavior. <laughs> um, but when he came out of the water, some otters used to come and dry him off with their fur. Nice. This is kind <laughs> of um, um, Snow White stuff, isn't it? Like yeah, well, yeah, yeah. well, it's very St. Francis, actually. St. Francis oh, of Assisi, yeah. right? A, a better, continuation yeah. of that same kind of imagery. Uh, there's a story of St. Bridget. She comes home one day to her house. She takes off her cloak. And without realizing what she's doing, she tries to hang the cloak on a beam of sunlight that's shining through a crack in the wall. Whoa. But so she thought it was something solid, right? But because God loves her so much, the beam of sunlight keeps the cloak hanging there until she you know, picks it up again and is on her way. <laughs> is, was it her doing that we got an extra, over here, we got an extra bank holiday this year? Oh, I, I have no idea. <laughs> I haven't been back in the old side for a while, so. <laughs> I was working anyway, it meant nothing to me. Really. A, mir a miracle, a miracle of Bridget. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, miracles, and that, that whole idea brings me on, like, that's a pet subject of mine, really. Um, I think what's, interesting in a, in a kind of a in a deeper sense about miracles is that these early medieval christians had a very different understanding of of what that meant what was miraculous very different to us but even different to later medieval thinkers so there's an important change in the history of ideas about miracles it happens in the scholastic period so that's kind of 12th 13th century time of you know thomas aquinas william of ockham who we mentioned right oh boy uh, oh boy. <laughs> and the thinking on miracles kind of changed a lot. So, so I'll give an example. Um, so Thomas Aquinas, in one of his writings, gave examples of events that might seem miraculous to the ignorant, so like solar eclipses or magnetic attraction, but which were not miracles because they followed the law, the laws of nature. And I think that kind of fits with our understanding, even if we don't believe in miracles per se, we have that idea, that distinction between natural and supernatural, right? So that's what the scholastics did. They separated events into two categories, natural and supernatural. That distinction was not followed in the early Middle Ages. So I think this is one of the, this is one of the big gaps between our understanding and, and, and their worldview. It can be a bit difficult to, to get your head around. So basically for the scholastics and for, for you know, people who came after them and, and for us, 
a miracle is something that happens contrary to the laws of nature. But for my early medieval writers, there's no such separate category as the laws of nature. Everything that happens in the universe happens directly through God's power. So a sunset is just as much of a miracle as the Red Sea parting to let mm. Moses through. Right? It's all happening directly through God. Uh, there's a great example of a medieval miracle story given in a book by, uh, by Robert Bartlett. It's called Why Can the Dead Do Such Great Things? That's the name of the book. Uh, I, can't, I can't remember the source of the story, but basically a young novice monk is walking in the woods one day. He loses his prayer book. Uh, and that night he realizes he's lost it. So he says a prayer to what, whichever saint it is. Uh, and he goes back the next day and he finds the prayer book. <laughs> a miracle. That's, that's happened to me. <laughs> so, right. So you can think of it as God is the author of everything that happens, like the author of a book. So if you lose your prayer book, God meant that to happen. If you find your prayer book, God meant that to happen. If you're a, a very sinful person and your house falls down on your head, that was meant to happen. Now, maybe it also happened because the builders you paid to build your house, you know, did a shoddy job. But both explanations can, can coexist, right? Uh, so I'd, I'd like here to, to bring in one of my favorite early medieval texts. Uh, it's a book called On the Miracles of Sacred Scripture. It was written in 654 in a monastery somewhere in the, somewhere in the southern half of Ireland, possibly Lismore in County Waterford. The author has a pen name. They call themselves the Irish Augustine. We don't actually know their real name. And the point of the book is to explain all the miracles described in the Bible. So an important emphasis here to explain, not to explain away, even though it might seem like that to us. So I uh, printed out a chapter here uh, where he's discussing the miracle of, of Christ walking on, on the waters, right? How did that actually work? How did that come about? Well, he says either the flesh was made light so that it wouldn't sink down into the water, uh, which is something that will happen to all our bodies on the day of resurrection, right? We'll kind of float up into the air, these kind of wispy bodies. Or he kind of goes on, he, he has a big section here. Here's another approach. Maybe water, the nature of the water was made firm because that happens sometimes when water freezes over, for instance, uh, it stiffens into a, into a solid form. Well, if it can do that when it's, you know, when it's winter and it freezes over, why can't God just make it become hard at other times? Um, or there's another kind of possibility. So, for instance, sometimes you see uh, what he says here. You, sometimes you see the, the water bearing timbers, however big, or humans, or bodies of other animals, or floating wooden ships. And that's not strange or odd. So maybe it's something along those lines. It's just an extension of those same rules. Right, so it's kind of thinking about the miraculous in a way that to us seems very rationalist, right? It's, yeah. it's kind of, but they're not rational, they're rationalizing. They're not kind of explaining it away. They still think it's miraculous. They just think, well, everything's miraculous. Everything knows from God. This is just how he did it. Yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, it's, it's looking at the detail of it, like the origin is still supernatural, but we still want to know by what earthly means it well that's exactly happened. it though I, I wouldn't use the word supernatural 
Right, we don't yeah, have that course. term, you see. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. It's, it's there's, all, no, there's no difference. It's all natural. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so they don't have. The, if you like, the scholastics and later thinkers kind of had this idea of the the watchmaker god. Yes. Where at, at the moment of creation, he created this beautiful watch and he set it running and he stood back. Yes. And a miracle is when he kind of comes in and pokes his finger in and does something. Yeah. Nice. But the early medieval guys, they didn't have that concept. There wasn't a distinction there. Everything that happens is just directly from God, yeah. even the regular stuff, even the sunsets and sunrises. Does that mean that, like, what we now call a miracle is in fact not special? There's no what makes it special. Uh, according to these early medieval things. Yes, just be, that it's unusual, that it's rare. Um, that counter to well, that's it. There is no objective way of of depicting what a miracle is. <laughs> so Saint Augustine of Hippo has, you know, has lots. He writes lots about this, and he says. I can't remember the exact quote, but something more or less along the lines of, uh, I call a miracle anything which seems strange or different. Okay. So it's all completely in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> so again, that's why I use that, that you know, that kind of metaphor of, of, of God as a, as a writer almost. You've got to just think he's this author. He's authoring everything that happens in the world. And just like, you know, some kind of, uh, bad hack novelist. He's filling it with loads of kind of allegories and moral <laughs> lessons and and all this kind of stuff. Right? Very nice. Let's um let's talk about relics. Um, yeah, because I li I like this. Are there was was there a history of relics in Ireland at this time? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we 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 wouldn't have too many surviving from the very my my early period. Uh, although a few years ago. Uh, uh, and Oxford academic Julia Smith found not the relics themselves, but in a monastery in Switzerland, she found the little relic labels that were left, little labels that were attached to, you know, a piece of bone or something. And we've got one for St. Bridget there from probably, huh. uh, I think, the ninth century or so. So, yeah, the Irish were getting in on the act. Absolutely. Re you know, relics are extremely important, uh, even at this early stage. They represent, I suppose, just that physical connection to the holiness of the saint. So by well, touching or praying to a relic, you, you're kind of getting some of the benefits of visiting the saint's tomb or, or something like that. Right? Was there a process, this is a bit Father Ted, but was, was there a process for <laughs> um, by which the church okayed them? No, not really. No, you, you really have to think of the church in this period as a, as a much less centralized institution. Okay. It just doesn't have the ability to keep track of things in that same way, right? So it's all about local monasteries, local churches. Uh, they try to push their own local saint, you know? Um, and is there, I mean, I suppose this, this far back, it's hard to know, but like, was there any sort of black market for these things? Like, do you think, do we think there were people manufacturing them for profit? Yeah. Well, you didn't really need to ma manufacture them. So all you needed was a, a, a bit of a bone or something. <laughs> Um, they they certainly weren't all legit, but I mean, probably many saints weren't even legit. You know, if you look at the list of saints from medieval Ireland, for instance, you'll see lots of people with the same name or very similar names, but just attached to a, to a different monastery or a different church. You know, the, there was definitely some saints cults that kind of split into, into different individuals. With some of the early martyrs, for instance, sometimes you would get an abbot of a, of a monastery or a, or a bishop or someone who would say, oh, oh, I had a dream and God showed me where some martyrs were, were buried. 
and we've dug up their bones and they're important saints now and you can you know you can, you can come to their their tomb so there was plenty of that going on and a lot of it is propaganda as well you know uh the importance a lot of the important centers certainly in in ireland were monasteries you want to write you want to kind of big up your own saint and make them as important as you can uh and that's and and, and relics are kind of part of that cult and a relic could be could be anything you know if we take the example of saint cuthbert again uh saint cuthbert lived for many years uh in a little island called farn just off lindisfarne in a little kind of hermitage there a little oratory and after he died there was a, a hermit with a facial disfigurement and he took a part of the covering of the wall of the oratory and put it in some water and washed his face with it and he was cured of his facial disfigurement. So it didn't even have to be, you know, a piece of the body. Uh, but it was usually most likely to be a, a piece of bone from the saint's body. Uh, and often what actually happened was that the, these important relics would be in case, enclosed in some kind of fancy reliquary. Uh, they kind of got even more fancy as the centuries went on. Uh, and that would be taken out and kind of venerated on the saint's feast day and what have you. Were there like saints' penises and stuff? Did I read that somewhere? Was that a thing? There, there probably were. Uh, <laughs> certainly quite possible at some point in medieval Christian Europe. I haven't come across any in, okay. in, in, in my period. But yeah, I, I, I can almost 100% certainty say yes. <laughs> So any, any other strange ones or any that I might have heard of across Europe? That you've... I mean, uh, you know, as I said, they were, they were mostly boring enough. They were mostly bits of bone or, or this kind of thing. Obviously, you had the parts of, of, uh, of the cross from the crucifixion. Uh, those were quite common. There were many more pieces of the cross than could have been <laughs> <laughs> on, a, on an actual cross <laughs> could have been i mean the cross was rediscovered you know uh, oh. in the fourth century all right uh, you know they obviously didn't have christ's original cross i'm <laughs> gonna say it now um so yeah i mean relics are interesting in, the, in that they have that link uh, to the saint, but nothing I can think of now off the top of my head that's that's too interesting. Okay, um, and at, at this point in Christianity, was there, um, like, was there an idea of of, of the devil and of de demons? Was that part of the story yet? Oh, the devil was absolutely. Well, he was. He was right there. He's. I mean, he's not so much in the Bible, really. Yeah, that's. I'm, uh, I'm unclear as to when he comes on the scene because he's not overtly. Yeah, so he is mentioned. Uh, you do have that that scene in the Gospels of of, of yeah. Satan tempting tempting uh, Christ in uh, in the desert. But yeah, he's not. You know, the Book of Genesis, the creation narrative in the Book of Genesis doesn't really mention the devil unless you decide that the serpent is the devil. But it doesn't actually say that. Mm. Uh, so a lot of it was was later. It was pieced together by Christian readers of the Bible, kind of taking uh, and a good chunk of it was taken from again. You know these kind of widespread ideas in in ancient Greece and and Rome. Um, so that basic idea of you know of demons is, is not so strange, right? You know that that idea that there's these invisible beings in the world who might be malevolent or might be helpful. That's an idea that's very widespread and and much much older than, than Christianity. And the word demons actually comes from from Greek uh, demones, which were kind of these 
lesser spirits, lesser gods, according to ancient Greek practices, right? Mm. And the Bible also has some some kind of stories about demons. So demons for the for the medieval Christians, demons were absolutely everywhere. They were all about us, flitting about in in the air. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples of some some good stories about demons from the from the saints' lives. Uh, the first I have here is from the writings of Gregory the Great. So he was he was Pope Pope Gregory the Great, Pope from about 590 to 604. That's not great. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> so according to Gregory, uh, he has this story set in an Italian monastery, and one of the nuns from the monastery she's she's walking in the garden one day and she sees a lettuce that she likes the look of, and so she greedily grabs a leaf from the lettuce and, and gobbles it down. And immediately she falls down to the ground and she's kind of in torment and she's brought into, you know, into, into a bed and they go and summon Saint Equitius, who's the abbot of the, the monastery and he hurries along and he finds her basically possessed. Right? And she's talking like the, the, the demon is talking through her, just like in the exorcist. No, so this, this, that, that idea is, is this old, I didn't know. Oh, absolutely. And oh, the demon, brilliant. what the demon is saying is, what have I done? What have I done? I was sitting there on the lettuce and she came and ate me. Oh. <laughs> because what and and the moral of the story is she forgot to bless the lettuce with the sign of the cross before eating and there was a little demon sitting on the, on the leaf uh we have a similar story from from our neck of the woods from uh, it's told by the irish abbot uh Adivnon of the monastery of iona and he has a story about um saint columkilla and i've Oh, I think I know. I think I know where this is going. I've misplaced uh, my uh, copy while, of that story. While you're looking for your book, from... I'll just while you're looking for your your source, I'll just mention. Uh, I think this story is well known amongst uh, monster hunters and cryptozoologists. So. Oh uh, no no we we were, we're not talking there, about no? that before the show but uh, that's not actually <laughs> what I'm talking about. That. No, I was talking about this is another story about a demon. Okay, right. I'll just, I just I suppose I should I, I was going to mention. And he's also, it's the same guy, right? He's associated with... Yeah, it's the same guy, uh, this guy. Adam, banishing Adam, some um, kind of Yeah, so he's dragon. the abbot of, of Iona uh, in kind of in the, in, the, in the 7th century. And he's talking about Columkilla, who was maybe a century before, right? Late, late 6th century. Very similar miracle, again, involving a demon, right? There's a young fellow in the monastery. He goes and he milks the cows and he's bringing back a wooden pail with all the milk in it. Uh, and he brings it to St. Columba to, to bless the milk. Apparently it was something you did. And St. Columba once reacts and, and he makes the sign of the cross in, in the direction of the pale. And I'll read out what happens. Right, he calls on the name of God and he blessed the vessel, which at once shook violently. The peg that held the lid to the pale was shot back through both holes and thrown some distance. The lid crashed to the ground and most of the milk spilled onto the earth. Uh, and Columba says to him, you were careless today in your work. There was a devil hiding in the bottom of the pail. And before you poured the milk in, you should have driven it off by making the sign of the Lord's cross. <laughs> so it's like picking up your shoes without checking if there's a scorpion in them. Like they're, demons are just, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're just everywhere. Don't, you know, you can't let your guard down. Exactly, exactly. Um, demons were, I mean, they were very important as well for in, in that kind of monastic world as well, because demons were, you know, they, they kind of, 
they couldn't quite invade your mind, but they could kind of get you to think things or they could kind of uh, tug at your body and make you think. So this kind of brings us back to that question of, you know, why did people believe in these things? Why do people believe in demons? Because that obviously just seems like such an absurd thing to believe to us. Uh, but I think you have to remember that a, a lot of things have to happen before demons and, and miracles and relics and all of that seems so obviously irrational. So for one thing, we, we now have the idea of the subconscious or the unconscious mind. You know, we recognize that strange thoughts or ideas or desires can come bubbling up from the subconscious, but we recognize that that's a part of our own mind. But for medieval monks, there's this widespread idea that demons could kind of tug at your body, or awake impure thoughts, right? Or they could make you dream things while you were asleep. They were blamed for wet dreams in monasteries, right? Wow. <laughs> but, right, you can imagine, right? If you think of things like sleep paralysis, right? Yeah, or, course, or night yeah. terrors, can you come up with a, a better explanation for, for those things using the toolkit they're, available they're to... The they're kind person. of well-worn, well-worn explanations for strange things in, in my field. So, and, and yeah. yes, they're like they've happened to me. They are ex incredibly absurd. And if if that had happened to me without me knowing what they were, who you know, who knows? I can see how you, how you would interpret that as something supernatural or something. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. Definitely something or... something external to you. Yeah. Like yeah. now we say, oh yeah, okay, it's it's our weird brain. We understand evolution, so we say we it's kind of imperfect. We've ended up with this strange brain that works in an odd way but you know why not think it's it's some kind of external yeah. malevolent uh, yeah, that's force. what it feels like yeah yeah, yeah. Um, the last the other... i'll just make one last point about demons which i i i think you might like uh so so one interesting thing about the way christians thought about demons is is there was this idea that pagan gods were actually demons so in other words, if you were worshiping some idol that appeared to have divine powers, it was actually, it wasn't a god, it was just a demon tricking you. Uh, and incidental to that, it was actually medieval Christian monks who kind of indirectly gave us the god Krom from the Conan no. movies. No. <laughs> yeah. So part of the story of St. Patrick was that he, he came to Ireland and he converted everyone and he struck down all the idols and the false gods and et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, it's not until about the year 900 that we get any name attached to any of the idols that Patrick is supposed to have destroyed, right? So this is hundreds of years later. It's basically, this is a retcon. This is, a retcon. This is yeah, it's medieval monks <laughs> writing historical fiction, right? But in, in about the year 900, we have this text where Patrick is, is going around Ireland and he comes across, quote, the chief idol of Ireland, namely Ken Cruach, covered with gold and silver, and 12 other idols covered with brass about him. So Ken Kruach was the name that, that literally means bloody head, right? Ken, like Kjown. Kjown, yeah. Uh, in later Kruach, medieval yeah. texts, this name, Ken Kruach, somehow morphs into Krom Kruach. Nice. Right. And just, so just to emphasize, not a genuine pre-Christian deity. This is a medieval monk's imagined version of a pre-Christian deity, more inspired really by pagan gods like Moloch, right, from the Old Testament. So this is, I mean, the guy who wrote Conan, Robert E. Howard, was obsessed with Celts, and yep. or at yep. least, you know, what, what, whatever you could read about the Celts in the 1930s, you know, <laughs> in Texas, <laughs> whatever interpretation was available to him. <laughs> uh, we better we better mention the Loch Ness story because otherwise my earlier comments about cryptozoology will make no sense, and I shall have to sadly edit them out. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah, so in that same um, in that same life of Saint Columkilla by Adivnan of Iona, uh, there is an encounter with a creature in what is basically uh, it's actually the river nest. Yes. Uh, let me just uh, see if I can if I can bring it up here in my copy. Uh, give you one give you one moment. So after Loch Ness, the Loch Ness monster becomes a thing in the 1930s. Uh, people interested in this sort of thing are very keen to make it look like it has a history and say, oh, no, this didn't just pop up now because of, you know, this contemporary folklore. They want to find stuff. They open up the history books and they look back and they say, is there anything we can point to in history that makes it look like this has um, a precedent? And this story is one that they land on. Yeah, so Colin Killer, he's 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 in the lands of the of the Picts, or he's on his way to the lands of the Picts. Sorry, he has to cross the the River Ness. Uh, Colin Killer was based in Scotland, right? Uh, that monastery I own is on the western coast of Scotland. So uh, he's just crossing Scotland. He, he he's crossing the River Ness, and he sees this local fellow being buried. And he hears that he was snatched by this water beast and 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 mauled. Um, so, what does St. Colum Killer do after being told all this? Well, he sends one of his followers out to swim across the river uh, and bring uh, a boat across from the other side, right? Uh, so the follower does this without hesitation. He dives off into the water. The beast comes out. Uh, it starts following this. You know, you can play the Jaws music in your head. It starts, <laughs> it starts following the monk who's swimming across. Uh, and... Quote, he suddenly swam up to the surface, rushing open-mouthed with a great roar towards the man as he was swimming midstream. All the bystanders froze in terror, but the blessed man, in other words, St. Columkilla, right, raises his holy hand, he made the sign of the cross in the air, he evokes the name of God, and he commands the fierce beast, saying, go no further, do not touch the man, go back at once. And of course, the beast does this, off he goes, uh, and there's no more problems with that beast and this particular miracle i mean it's interesting obviously because it ties into the Loch Ness monster for out of no one who wrote it and for the people reading it there was a very clear moral here because it's a very kind of simple miracle in a way having shown the power of god all those locals who were you know bystanders who were watching the saint do this say oh wow the christian god is really powerful let's all become christians and everybody in the cafe cheered. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Are there lots of, like, is this a common motif? Do the saints come up against beasts and monsters and dragons? Often? Absolutely, absolutely. And you have to be a bit careful with modern translations. Uh, mm. I mean, that's a very good translation I was reading from there. But, you know, they, they were very nonspecific with some of these words that they used. Uh, so you often see saints fighting what are called serpents right we get the word serpent from that but maybe they're imagining a kind of a bigger dragon-like thing um all these kind of creatures and beasties that lived in rivers or caves uh, and that's uh, eventually that gives us the you know this is the kind of motif that gives us the legend of saint patrick banishing the snakes uh, from ireland you have saint george and the dragon as well those have all become very different things but probably actually the original hagiographers were picturing something you know, quite similar, some kind of slithery beastie. Yeah, I'm just thinking of like a friend of the, a friend of the show, Cameron McCormack, who's 
excellent zoologist was was talking recently about how again cryptozoologists often like to say oh you know these various different groups of people or civilizations you know spoke about dragons or spoke about um you know reptiles and it, it like it actually requires a very loose uh, use of the word in order to say like oh european you know creatures from these kind of stories oh they were the same as you know east asian dragons yeah, which are, yeah. you know they're, they're really not not the same not, thing at all they're okay. only the same if you call them all dragons because <laughs> you've translated <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> in that particular way so yeah so what do you think they had in mind when when they say beast does it does it matter is it, did it, it doesn't matter? it doesn't really matter they're not too interested in giving you details about that there are other medieval texts like the physiologus and then the later medieval bestiaries that kind of go into details even those texts are more concerned with the kind of the moral message you can get from some of these creatures. Mm. They did imagine all these strange creatures. Um, you know, they knew that there were sea creatures as well, massive sea creatures, uh, which are sometimes, you know, in certain texts in modern translations, they will be, it'll be translated as whales. But again, they're not necessarily, that's not the word necessarily that they're using. And they might be just thinking of this some kind of strange sea creature. They really didn't have a very organized uh, classification system <laughs> for the natural yeah. world, you know. Sure, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm, you know, you know, in Irish, the word for um, paced. Is that what you're thinking? Paced. Yeah. 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 Well, it's the so same like, thing. If if you read in modern that, Irish, it means worm. Yeah. But, but originally, well, it wasn't just any sort of. Serpentine. Yeah, I think I think it comes from the same kind of the thing if you read the hobbit or something yeah you'll see the dragon was referred to as a worm as a worm yeah. now it's w-y-r-m yeah because tolkien thought it would sound too dumb if you said w-r-m <laughs> but it's the same it's the same kind of thing right that they were just you know they were just all kind of classified as somehow the same thing yeah but even to me i mean i, I don't know where i get this from but to me the word paste comes with connotations of 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 demons or the devil or something again yeah. probably yeah, because absolutely. of saint patrick and yeah Right. Is there anything we haven't covered? That's probably plenty. Excellent. Um, any take-home messages, or is there, if you, if you like, is there a sound bite we can finish with? What would you like people to, if, if people knew nothing about this period, or, or they they only had the sort of misconceptions that a lot of us yeah, do? Yeah, I guess the important thing, the take-home message is that people in the early medieval period and in lots of other pre-modern periods as well. Uh, were capable, absolutely capable of being rational, and they tried to put together models of the world that made sense and that accorded with the phenomena that they saw. Doesn't mean that they were right. Doesn't mean that they picked the best models. Um, but it just means that you know uh, they're, they're not just kind of believing whatever the Bible says or kind of you know just kind of you know rolling around in, in the mud <laughs> like in like in uh like in uh, monty python i can't believe know? it took us as long to get to it <laughs> i thought that would be the first thing we'd say uh you know that there was absolutely and i mean there's there's other misconceptions about the medieval era that i could talk about and, and go on at length i'll leave you with, i'll leave you with one factor that is kind of on an unrelated note um people have this idea i think that lifespans were really short in the middle ages Right, you know this idea. You like, oh, you married when you were sixteen, and then you were dead at thirty-five, kind of, kind of thing. And you had no teeth. <laughs> yeah, uh, and this is, I think, this comes from a confusion about life expectancy. Right. So, 
at any point, basically before the last hundred years, life expectancy is 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 an average, and that average is very low before you know 1900 because there was very high infant mortality. So if you were born into the early medieval world, I think you you know the uh, estimates vary, but you had maybe a 50% chance of making it to your 10th birthday. Once you made it that far, you could live to 70, mm. right? So you could live to a kind of a normal, you might know that line from the Psalms, right? The days of our years are three score and 10, three score and 10, 70. Yeah. Uh, and as far as I know, there weren't any medieval commentators on the Psalms, you know, commenting on that line saying, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm 28 and I'm about to <laughs> fall over. <laughs> Uh, obviously, there's an important proviso there, which is childbirth, because there was a very high mortality rate for that. So for women, the life expectancy, even after childhood, was probably much lower. But just this idea that kind of you were old at 40 or something is, is, yeah. is not true. Yeah. Cool. We'll, we'll wrap it up. So um, for folk, for people who are interested and would like to read more, is there anything that you've maybe either done yourself or anybody else out there who's done good stuff on this where we could, uh, we could put some links to? Sure. Well, so my book came out in 2020. Uh, it's very much about this kind of thing, specifically focusing on the Venerable Bede. Uh, that book is should be coming out in paperback at the end of April. Excellent. Right? So it should be coming out in paperback. I can give you a code uh, that should yes. give you 30% off as well that you can share oh, yeah. with your listeners. Yeah. Uh, I'd also just recommend if you, you know if you just would like uh, a quick read about some of this stuff. There's a book chapter by Catherine Park called Observation in the Margins, 500 to 1500. Uh, and Catherine Park has put that up online for free. So if you just Google that, Catherine Park Observation in the Margins, you, you'll, come, you'll be able to download that. Goes across, you know, goes through many of the ideas we talked about today. That whole idea of, you know, how much observation uh, as, as a way of, of kind of finding out things was, was going on in, in that period. Excellent. Oh, and thank you for your time and your expertise. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. And there's some lovely filth down here. <laughs> said. <laughs> and that's it for this episode, folks. Uh, big thanks to Dr. Owen Ahern for speaking with me should have had him on ages ago really i also think we showed admirable restraint in not hitting the uh, monty python references until pretty late in the game so as always you can reach out over on twitter where i'm at strange ireland or instagram where i am irish underscore cryptid underscore dude uh, and don't forget you can always support the show over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic so as always folks until next time Stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.